What if you could be doing something smarter with your money that creates income now? If you're wanting to get ahead financially and enjoy greater freedom of choice, if you want a comfortable retirement and you know you'll have more choices if you can do more with your money now, if you've wondered who else is creating ways to make their money work for them and you want actionable ideas with honest pros and cons and no fluff, welcome to the Richer Geek Podcast. We're here helping people find creative ways to build wealth and financial freedom. I'm Mike Stoller, and in this podcast, you'll hear from others who are already doing these things and learn how you can too. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Richard Geek. Today's guest is Jacob Vanderslice. He's the principal at Van West Partners. It's a Denver-based real estate investment firm focusing on uh, the acquisition management of self-storage centers and other different uh, real estate investments throughout the United States. Uh, They've established a track record. They have over $195 million in real estate assets. So these guys have been successful. Uh, Jacob and his partners are driven by a commitment to deliver an expertly executed, adaptable strategy. Welcome to the show, Jacob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having us on today. We appreciate it. Yeah. So let's, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about some self-storage, why that's still there, you know, some questions that our listeners may have about that. But uh, before we get into it, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you started, how you got into this. Yeah. Uh, we've been in real, uh, in real estate full-time for about 16 years now. Uh, we started off doing fix and flips. We've done a bunch of those all over the country. Uh, got into commercial real estate in 13 and 14, doing adaptive reuse retail projects with multi-tenant experience-based retail users like breweries and yoga studios and restaurants. And then we got into self-storage in 2015 and we had studied the asset class for a while and we had liked its history and that it's historically resistant to recessions and downturns. It's repeatable, predictable, scalable. Uh, so we started off with a number of ground-up development projects here in Denver and we expanded into the Midwest in 16, uh, specifically the Milwaukee market. We've got six deals out there and then just uh, kept buying deals in the Midwest and Southeast. And uh, as of today, we've got uh, over 30 self-storage facilities in 10 different states. And our primary objective lately has been to focus on acquiring existing facilities that are undermanaged with uh, below market rates, above market expense loads. Sometimes they don't have a website and really add value, add value first with capital improvements. And then uh, secondly, with uh, operational efficiencies. Mm -hmm. So we're on our current fund, uh, which is closing. We're recording this here the last day of uh, November. We're closing our fund uh, middle of next month. And we'll launch fund three in January of next year. And in addition to that, we're going to be doing some self-storage development that probably won't kick off until Q2 or Q3. We're seeing opportunities to start building again in various target markets. And those opportunities weren't there until kind of recently as rents have popped back up and uh, deals are hard to execute. So we'll be focusing on kind of higher to bar- higher barrier entry markets that are tough to entitle and tough to get built. Um, but it's been a good business for us. And uh, self-storage has been our primary focus for uh, over five years now. So how do you compete with, you know, first thing I think about in self-storage is there's a, there's a lot of them. 
you know, but there's also on, on the other hand, a lot of people you know, that need them. Uh, how do you look at, do you do feasibility studies? How do you look at, you know, just like around my house, there's seems to be a lot of self-storage. Uh, how do you look at an area? You know, do you do feasibility studies or do you just look at the population to say, hey, you know, one out of four people need storage, you know, because their garage is already full, right? Yeah, we, we do all the above. And uh, one of the risks in self-storage is supply and oversupply. Mm-hmm. Self-storage is very local supply sensitive. So we'll track supply ratios in the one, three and five mile trade radius. Nationally, there's about eight square feet per capita of self-storage. Um, some markets can support higher supply ratios than that if their rents are lower. So for example, you might have a market that's at 15 square feet per capita, uh, but rents are only 90 cents per foot per month. So that means that more of that population can afford to store versus say in Seattle, where rents might be $2.25, $2.50 per foot per month. Um, that market might be a little more sensitive to increased supply because not as many people can afford those kind of rates. So we analyze supply ratios, existing rates, um, competitor rates. Uh, we look at seasonality. So the peaks and troughs of the storage leasing season might be very different, uh, are very different for that matter in say Milwaukee than they are in Pensacola, Florida. Um, you have a much sharper seasonality curve in the Midwest when the bad weather comes and you don't afford a panhandle. So we'll, we'll normalize that seasonality and kind of understand what the historic revenues have been in the summer and winter. Um, and then um, beyond all that, we look at just basic fundamentals. We want, we want markets with good population growth, uh, good, uh, good area meeting income, um, and just good, uh, just good real estate nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. And do you also look at, you know, I see a lot of different type of storage facilities. You have, um, you know, chain link, you have the walled end, just regular storage. You have the end closed, the air conditioning. Uh, are you seeing that one is more popular than the other in the different locations? And uh, is the AC air conditioned units give you that much more of a bang for your buck or is it? They, they, they do. It depends on the market. And we've got all types of deals. We have infill multi-story climate controlled facilities that are elevator accessed in very dense locations And we have more suburban, single-story, traditional drive-up facilities that are not climate controlled. Mm -hmm. And we have mixtures, too. We have some single-story drive-up facilities that have a climate-controlled component and a non-climate-controlled component. Um, That's all kind of market-dependent. And generally speaking, uh, owners will realize a premium on climate-controlled units versus non. Mm. Yeah. But sometimes customers don't want to pay that premium because they don't care. They're just storing some some old furniture or, or whatever, some seasonal gear, and, and they don't care if it's climate controlled or not. They just want to, they just want the cheaper rate. Sure. Um, now, how do you compete with, you, know, you see some of the big names out there. Uh, what is your goal within the funds? Is it to compete with these REITs or is it to build up a portfolio and then possibly sell to them? You know, what is, what are you seeing and how do you compete with these yeah. really big names? Well, we, uh, we self-manage our portfolio and we used to outsource our management uh, with the REITs and the REITs know what they're doing. Uh, they're, they've got an amazing marketing machine and amazing brand presence and they're just widely known. 
Um, but we found over time that in general, third parties don't care about your deal as much as you do. No matter how good they are, they are not watching the numbers like an owner watches the numbers. And there's a number of ancillary revenue streams that the REITs will keep in self-storage. They do not share with the ownership side. So for example, tenant insurance. Um, I'm sure most people listening to this podcast, if they rent a car, they decline the insurance because they have it on their, their Chase Sapphire card. They've got it on their auto policy. A lot of people buy that insurance though. And in self-storage, uh, believe it or not, uh, self-storage leases stipulate that the owner is not responsible for the customer's contents in the unit. So we'll sell them a protection plan to cover their contents up to five or $10,000, depending on the amount. And we make money on that. And the REITs do the same thing, but they don't share that. So those are one of the, that's kind of one of the examples that we discovered over time that, yeah, they're, they've got an amazing brand and, and market presence, but uh, our bottom line is not what it would be if we were self-managing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so over time, we started taking these back from the REITs self-managing them and then uh, self-managing any, any acquisitions that we made since uh, basically starting three years ago. Mm-hmm. So as far as competing with the REITs, um, generally speaking, we endeavor to have a clean, safe, secure storage facility at an affordable rate. And storage to a degree is a commodity. And if you have a drive up 10 by 10 that's not climate controlled for hundred bucks a month, and next door public storage puts up a multi-story climate controlled facility uh, that a 10 by 10 is 125 or 130 a month, more than likely customers are gonna go with the cheaper price even though we're not climate controlled. So we generally try to compete on the revenue side being the more affordable option uh, against some of the competitors in the submarket. Mm-hmm. Now how, do, you've done a lot of different investments over the years. Um, what would you say the returns, you know, comparable returns on the self-storage investment are? Um, I, I would think it would be uh, less expensive to build because there's really not a lot of infrastructure. You're just building a lot of aluminum um, sheds, you know, and it, as far as multifamily and things like that. Um, are, are, there, are you seeing the same type of returns that you would see like on, on single family or multifamily? Do you know? Yeah, um, I, w- I would say our, our cash on cash yield on a current basis is likely higher than multifamily, especially in today's environment. Mm-hmm. And self-storage has been one of the darling asset classes the last couple of years, uh, along with, uh, along with uh, industrial and multifamily. Mm-hmm. Those have been kind of really hot. Mm-hmm. And we've seen cap rates drive down, especially over the last 18 months in self-storage, which of course means values have gone up. Um, so in terms of the value of our portfolio, we think it's gone up substantially, but, uh, we are not, uh, sellers on any of our assets anytime soon. We're more, we're more focused on dividend yield. Um, but based on our portfolio's performance, I think that our, our cash on cash return is, is higher than, uh, multifamily might be or industrial. Um, but I think cap rates and multifamily industrial is probably compressed downward a little bit further than self-storage. Um, so it just kind of depends on what your business plan is. Do you want to sell anytime soon? If, if you're not as, as worried about yield and more, more concentrated on appreciation and, uh, short-term upside, multifamily might be a better place to be, but if you're focused on an above market cash on cash return and a longer term hold, I think self-storage is a, is a better option. Have you thought about, or maybe you do this, um, 
I, I see a lot of self storage and, and, you know, I get your opinion on if it's worth it. You see, sometimes they're tied to a U-Haul and they do the pods or they do that type of storage, or some of them have, uh, you know, kind of the hot thing that I'm seeing in the storage business right now is uh, RV storage uh, because everyone and their brother because of COVID has bought an RV. Uh, have you thought about or looked into kind of doing an RV storage with the self storage or U-Haul with the, you know, are you kind of multi? Yeah, we, we are. It's, it's all about revenue and a number of our facilities around the country have boat and RV storage as well as U-Haul or Penske trucks. Mm-hmm. Um, the boat and RV storage is interesting because if you have excess land in a storage facility, you're, you may not build storage on that anytime soon, but it's very inexpensive to repurpose that land for vehicle parking. And uh, it's almost like free revenue. We have a deal in North Carolina. We spent, I think, $80,000 uh, building a boat and RV parking lot on land we already owned. And our gross potential rent on that $80,000 investment is like 50. And I think our current in place revenue is about 30,000 a year. So it's a really good ROI. On the U-Haul side, um, U-Haul is interesting because it can definitely augment your top line revenue. Uh, operationally, it can be challenging because you need a good customer service person there leasing trucks, turning trucks over. Um, but we have one deal that uh, we're probably grossing about $40,000 a year uh, in Ohio doing U-Haul rentals. So from a cash flow perspective, uh, doing truck rentals makes sense. But from a value creation perspective, you may not uh, eventually sell that deal and get credit from a cap rate basis on that income stream in the same way you would get credit for in the income stream from your self-storage and your boat and RV parking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And and another thing that I really like, uh, because we're, I'm dealing with it in the hotel space, is uh, there's not a lot of need for employees at a self-storage. You know, it's, for me, it's like, my God, you know, just trying to hire and retain people for the hotels. It's just, it's killing me. Uh, but what I really like about the self-storage is you can, there's a lot of automation. There is, there is. So we, we have a, we have a blend that we have, uh, we have some deals that are staffed full-time with a traditional onsite manager. And we have some deals that have no full-time onsite manager. It just kind of depends on the deal type. Mm-hmm. But that being said, you still need boots on the ground. You still need people there for customer service issues. A gate system goes down. Theft, which happens occasionally. Um, really, any bad things that happen, you need a you need a full-time W two person in that market to go address it. Uh, but yeah, our our expense load on the payroll side is certainly lighter than than hospitality would be, of course. But it, you know, it may seem like a stretch. I don't I don't think. I think there are a number of similarities between hospitality and self-storage. Um, one of them is they're both very operationally intensive. So we are we are a self-storage operator and manager before we're a real estate investment company. Mm-hmm. Uh, the operations are critical, and that's so much of our value creation strategy is growing NOI over time, retaining occupancy. Um, so that's kind of one similarity. And, and a second one, which is interesting, interesting, is like hospitality, our revenue was very dynamic. So we're, we're not doing, you know, one night leases uh, like you are in hospitality, but our leases are month to month. So in our business, just like hospitality, we have many, many customers moving in and moving out or in your case, checking in and checking out um, every day and every month. And our revenue streams change by the season, right? Based on where your hotel deals are, 
summer occupancies might be higher because people are on vacation and they're traveling. Same thing in self-storage. People are off school. They're, they're maybe making a move during the summer because the kids aren't going to school. They need a storage solution for six months or a year. Um, so they're not that dissimilar in terms of the operations and the very dynamic revenue management. Uh, both are operationally intensive and revenue changes by the day. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it's just, man, yeah, it kind of makes me want to maybe build an, an RV self-storage unit instead of going after another hotel project. Just well, as they say, the grass know. is always greener. <laughs> That's uh, wait, true. Uh, yeah, wait, wait till you have uh, someone sleeping in a unit overnight that shouldn't be. Uh, uh, then, you're, then you're back into hospitality, I guess. And you yeah. <laughs> wait, wait till you have someone uh, breaking into the neighbor's unit and stealing their stuff. Um, uh, you know, creating wealth in real estate is never easy. No, it's not. But it is worth it, everyone. It is worth it. It is. It is. So let's talk about how people can uh, invest with you. You know, what is talking about, you know, diversifying into self-storage. Um, talk about your storage fund, how you can, it can scale, you know, all of our portfolios. Talk a little bit about what you're doing. Your, your one is coming up. Yeah. Um, if you want to get involved in self-storage, there's really two ways to do it. Actually, there's three ways. Uh, one way is you can go out and buy a storage deal and or build one and figure out how to operate it and hire a manager and get your call center you know, going. That's, that's not a bad strategy if you're committed to it and you want to spend the time actually building your portfolio up. Uh, another way is to buy stock in a REIT, right? You could buy some extra space. You could buy some CubeSmart. Um, the advantage to buying stock in a REIT is you've got liquidity, so you get your money out quickly if you need to. Um, and the other way is to invest in a private syndicate, uh, syndication or fund uh, with someone like us or somebody else. Um, one of the advantages to investing in a private syndication or fund in the storage space is you're getting most of the upside and not doing any work. You have exposure to the asset class. And you also are enjoying the benefits of depreciation that come along with real estate. And you're not getting that in a REIT. Uh, you would if you built your own deal, obviously, and it'd be all yours. Um, but private investing is a great vehicle to kind of get exposure to an asset class that you may want to have a piece of, but you don't want to go out and execute it on your own. Um, there's a lot of good operators out there. and We're a good operator. Um, another good group is called Reliant, um, Reliant Investments. Uh, they're based out of Atlanta. A um, number of groups like us kind of do, this, do a similar thing. They launch funds and syndications and raise capital from investors and pay distributions and, you know, collectively as a partnership, create wealth together. Uh, different ways that you can invest. And, you know, we've spoken about this a uh, little bit in the past. Um, using your self-directed IRA is something that a lot of people don't think about. They have this big IRA. It's just sitting there. It's just sitting in the market. Um, how can they take that and invest it in real estate? Yeah, we, we, have, uh, we have millions of dollars in self-directed IRA capital in our funds and syndications. And there's some disadvantages to it and advantages. One of the disadvantages to investing with an IRA is you're not, you're not enjoying the benefits of the depreciation as much as you would be with cash. Um, but when and if there's a big gain, big liquidity event, uh, that, that is tax-free, which is very interesting. Um, we were touching on this before we started recording, but the mm -hmm. government was threatening to eliminate the ability for investors to invest in private placements with their retirement accounts. And not only were they going to 
eliminate that on a look forward basis, they were going to make it retroactive. So if you invested it with your IRA in one of our funds, for example, a year or two ago, and it's a fund that's going to last for seven years, say, um, the government suddenly is saying, okay, if you don't get your money out of this illiquid fund within two years, your retirement account is going to be penalized and taxed, which is astounding to me. Uh, my understanding is that this did not make it into the package. And uh, for right now, it's not going to be an issue, but uh, let's hope that doesn't pop back up in the future because that, be, uh, that would be very unfortunate and I think, frankly, unfair. It would, but and it would be absolutely- The government does what it wants. Well, it does. And it, you know, a lot of times they don't think about the repercussions and the repercussions of all the small businesses, all of us small entrepreneurs that rely on that. And yep. it, the, just the devastating effect that it's going to have on, on all of us you know, making a living. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a whole other <laughs> conversation. It certainly is. Yes. Um, so, Jacob, um, how can everyone get a hold of you? Uh, how can they find you? Well, they can go to our website, which is vanwestpartners.com. They can also email me at uh, jacob at vanwestpartners.com or hit me on LinkedIn, uh, Jacob Vanderslice. And you know whether they have interest in working with us or not, we're always open to talk and shop about real estate and kind of offering guidance on where to park your capital, what we see in the market, uh, risks, downsides. Uh, always happy to connect with folks. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Jacob. And everybody, uh, it is Vanderslice, V-A-N-D-E-R-S-L-I-C-E. Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate you coming on. Mike, thanks for having us on today. We appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Richard Geek Podcast, where we're helping others find creative ways to build wealth and financial freedom. For today's show notes, including all the links and resources from our show and more information about our guests, visit us at www.therichardgeek.com slash podcast. And don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Share with others who could benefit from listening and leave a rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. I appreciate you. And thanks for listening.